Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Out ...rather than judging them from the outside in. And I feel so privileged from having had those hours and hours with Lyndon Johnson... I think he was lonely when he talked to me. If I had known this him, way, you were with him after he left the White House. Correct. I mean, while I was in the White House, you know, he would often call me into his office late at night just to talk. And sometimes when I've gone back to the White House and seen that little room where we sat, it just brings back such a flood of memories. Off of the Oval Office. There? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And then, then I went down to his ranch to help him on his memoirs, the last years of his life. And I just went back to the ranch for the first time in like thirty-five years when I was involved as a consultant to All the Way, the HBO yes, movie that Brian Cranston was movie. brilliant. He was yeah, great in yeah. it. And so they had their premiere in Austin, and I went to the ranch the next day. And again, it was just overwhelming to see the bedroom where I used to stay and where his bedroom was and where Lady Bird's was and the closets where his clothes were and this chair that I used to sit in whenever he took a nap. He wanted me to be right outside the room just in case he needed something, the kitchen where we ate. It was an extraordinary experience that I value even more now at my age than I did then. I probably took it for granted. So here I am with a president day by day, and it was great. You said you never changed your uh, view of the Vietnam War. Did he change his? I don't think so. I mean, I think the saddest thing for him was that at the beginning, when you hear the tapes particularly, it's clear that he has no desire and and willingness even to get into the war. He's like, what are we doing over there? But then I think once he got in and the deeper he got in and the more he lost and the more lives that were lost— There was no way he could easily say he'd made a mistake. How can you acknowledge that fully when 50,000 lives have been lost? So, I mean, he would argue with me about, you think it was just a war of mama and papa. You know, I know that it was a more complicated war than that. And I know about the dominoes and things that you didn't know. And so it wasn't angry argument at the time. It was sadder argument. But I'm so happy that at least now, 50 years later, He's getting his righteous due for civil rights and for Medicare and for aid for education. Nobody dealt with Congress as Lyndon Johnson did. And it's because of what you said earlier. He could charm anybody when he's in their presence, not just charm them, but motivate them to do something. You know, he could call up those congressmen at 6 in the morning. He'd call them at 2 a.m. in the afternoon, call them at 2 p.m. and and just never let go. And they couldn't give up on him because he wanted this so much. I think the domestic stuff was in his 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 lexicon more than almost anything else that he wanted to do. That's what made it so sad. If there hadn't been the war, and this is the big historic question, mm-hmm. he would have been one of the great presidents. And even now, he's one of the really good presidents. You know, uh, David Marinus, uh, a great storyteller and historian in his own right, uh, was here uh, some time ago after he published this wonderful book he just wrote about Detroit during the 60s. And he talked about the... Uh, War on Poverty speech that President Johnson made at the University of Michigan. Uh, And the sense of that speech was that there was no problem that couldn't yield to uh, the uh, efforts and the attention of particularly American people acting through their government. Uh, And it struck me 
in reading that, that this generation had come through a depression, a world war, and there was this sense that uh, any problem could be overcome with enough effort and commitment. You know, John F. Kennedy saying we're going to land on the moon. Lyndon Johnson saying uh, that we're going to eradicate poverty. Um, There was a confidence that we don't feel today. Um, And uh, was that misplaced? Uh, were Were we the victims of our own ambitions? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I think that mood of the 60s, which really did characterize the 60s until the war deepened, until Martin Luther King was killed, until Bobby Kennedy was killed, and it turned dark and shadowed. But before that, you have to believe in America that men create problems or man creates problems and man can overcome them, not necessarily male, female, but just human man. Mm -hmm. And that speech at the Great Society speech at the University of Michigan, which my husband worked on, actually, my husband Richard Goodwin was a young speechwriter for JFK. A historic figure in his own right. Without a question. And he worked for for LBJ. Mm -hmm. And that speech meant a lot because it it was outlining not simply... Um, poverty. It was outlining what to do about education. It was outlining what to do about the countryside and the environment, what to do about the cities and civil rights. And so everything that eventually happened in the great society, Medicare, aid to education, student loans, three civil rights bills, um, even public broadcasting, immigration reform, all of that was part of that idea that he had that I've got power and I want to use it. Mm -hmm. I never thought I'd have it. And here I am. And from that moment on, from that speech on, he set up a whole bunch of task forces, and the legislation that came out in the next 18 months has never been equaled, except yeah. for the 100 days in, in FDR. Obviously, the problems of today are different, and um, we've, we've got 50 years of history, including a determined effort to undermine a lot of government, go- the image of government and the functions uh, of government, but uh, it seems to me now more than ever, given the complexity of the problems we have, that it's going to take a determined, organized effort with government at least as a catalyst uh, to deal with some of these things. I mean, without question. I mean, when you think about government, we've made it seem like a foreign entity when government is the collective action of the people to deal with problems that people face. And that's what we've lost our faith in. I think you said that early on, that that loss of faith in institutions. In, in the 1960s, people believed government would do right most of the time. And now that figure is so low, and it's to the detriment of us all. Because if it means we can't work together to solve the things that are are ailing us, then there's very little chance that it's going to get done. So until some leader or until some movement is able to restore that faith in collective action, that's what was so exciting about being young in the 60s. You know, our private lives were cut across public lives. People were part of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement. You really felt that what you were doing would make a difference in other people's lives. And you felt larger as a result. You weren't leading only your own life. You were leading this larger life. And that's why people go into politics. And if we don't get that group of people continuing to feel that going into public life, if we denigrate our politicians and put them at the bottom of a ladder of political careers, um, in a democracy, I don't know what that's going to mean, but it's a troubling thing. Well, and it's not just politicians, but all our institutions are under uh, assault now. And there are lots of uh, reasons for it. We'll get into that uh, a little bit later. i got to take a small, a short break here. Uh, And we'll be back with Doris Kearns Goodwin. You also wrote a book about uh, the Kennedy family, but you're obviously a student of John F. Kennedy uh, as well. Uh, 
just talking about the family for a second and the relationship between fathers and sons in politics, which is a, a kind of fascination of mine. Uh, talk about the dynamic in the Kennedy family and uh, how that helped formulate who he was and who he was as a president. What interested me in the years that I spent studying the Kennedy family was how much all the living members of the family cared about their father, Joe Kennedy. I mean, he's the one that when you look at him as a public figure, has a much more complicated reputation, obviously, than Rose Kennedy. You think of what he did as an ambassador to the court of St. James. You think of some anti-Semitism seemingly surrounding him. But as a father, this man, according to his children, over and over again, all they asked me when I was writing the book was, what do you think about daddy? Interestingly, not what do you think about our mother? Because she'd been lionized and sanctified. Um, But somehow he gave them confidence. He gave them, especially after his public life was over during World War II, he gave them all the energy, the vitality, and the money they needed to go forward. As we all know, Joe Jr. was the one that everybody thought, including Jack, the oldest son, would be carrying the banner of being the first Irish politician to possibly reach the presidency. But he was killed in World War II, and then John Kennedy took up that mantle, somewhat awkwardly at first, but then obviously grew into it. But even so, the family remained a huge part of the image of Kennedy. So it wasn't just this man running. He was running with this whole family around him. And I think that was part of our interest in him and continuing interest in the family. When you think about Bobby Kennedy and then Teddy Kennedy and then the next generation, um, I think it was Lord Beaverbrook in 1946 when John Kennedy won, said something to the father about, you know, your family may go down in history like the Adams family. There was so little he could have known then, because here's this, this one kid doing this, and yet it turns out that they will have been one of the more important families in our history. You point out that Jack Kennedy started off awkwardly. Um, what about, was there, do you think an ambivalence about the role? He he was an interesting guy because he was uh, incredibly charming and inspiring, especially as as you say, as he matured as a politician. But also, uh, he was a little removed, a little aloof, uh, and you get the sense of uh, maybe just a touch of ambivalence that he was carrying out his birthright or his responsibility, but that he had other. Th- other things, other interests that perhaps he might have pursued. I think that's right. I think he had a writer's sensibility. He could look at himself from the outside in and probably might have become a journalist or a writer had he not gone into politics. I remember just given the father's influence, one of the times when he made a bad speech and he thought it was not so great and the father told him it was good. And so he said, you know, if I went up on the stage and I fell before I gave my speech, my father would say, you fell more extraordinarily than anybody I've ever known. So I think the father's desire and and the, and just sort of the family hope for the future rested in him. But then obviously, once he got out on the campaign trail, once he became a congressman and a senator, um, William James says there's always a certain point when that voice inside speaks to you and says, this is what I was meant to do. And I think after a while, he certainly felt comfortable in the role. You know, your point about the writer's sensibility reminds me of my friend, the president. Absolutely. uh, President Obama, uh, who I think, people ask me, well, what president do you think he it most reminds you of, and I, I always say JFK because he he brought that same sense of inspiration and possibility, um, the same sort of elegance to the to the role of president. But he also has that sense of irony, sense of humor about 
about it. He has the ability to step back and act and witness the scenes in which he's actually he's also participating and the characters involved because he has a storyteller's uh, instinct as well. And I think neither JFK nor President Obama had that intense need to be loved by the public. I mean, that's the that's what the writer's sensibility means. I mean, they're very glad to win these elections. They're incredibly charming when you meet with them, and they want to win you over as a yes. person. But it's not like a Clinton or even an FDR who, for some reason, especially, I think, Bill Clinton, you could feel almost that, that his—and and LBJ, well, too— Well, Johnson, That certainly. there was a hole in them that had to be filled— by the people's approbation. And I don't think either JFK or President Obama had that hole. You know, uh, you, in your wonderful interview with him in Vanity Fair, you guys talked about that a little. And I, um, in all the years I've known him, I haven't really had this conversation with him. I had it with his sister, but not with him. I find it interesting that he is a guy whose father abandoned him, whose mother was an inconstant presence in his life because he, at, there were years when he, she wasn't living with him, uh, and yet he didn't have this neediness. Um, and it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, question as to why that is. Why isn't he more like a Bill Clinton who has a, 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 a need for a drive for the approbation? It's, and, you know, the, 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 um, each, each model has its pluses and minuses, the thing about it, about the, having the need for approbation is losing becomes a much more emotionally wrenching uh, uh, possibility. And it makes you a little risk averse in terms of the choices that you make, at least public choices. I no one accused Bill Clinton of being risk averse. But in public, in public choices, more than once Obama said, uh, I, I, my job would be to brief him on polling. He would dismiss the polling, uh, and he would say, yeah, but that's not what we're going to do. We're going to do this thing, and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. If we lose, uh, we lose, which is it would cause me to say I liked him so much because he listened to me so little. <laughs> but, uh, but still, what that means is, is that he's looking at the long term. He's able to see what he hopes to get accomplished, and that losing will not be for him a little death. I mean, you think about that's what happened, I think, to Lyndon Johnson, even when he lost that Senate race in 1941. Um, he went into a tailspin and a depression because he that, that was him. They were rejecting him. You have the feeling with Obama, and I think this was true with, um, with FDR, too. I mean, he did have that internal confidence underneath that if something went wrong, then it was because the time wasn't right. Not that they... It was so interesting when I talked to President Obama, he said that when he looked, I said, what taunted him about decisions he'd made? And he talked about Syria, of course. Yes. But he said, it's not because I was presented with one decision and two decisions and I tro- chose the worst one. It was rather that maybe if I had had, and this shows this incredible com- combination of confidence and humility. You never think of him being very humble. But he said, but maybe if I had had the genius of a Lincoln or the charm of an FDR or the legislative acumen of an LBJ, maybe there would have been some other thought out there that I couldn't come to. And that positions himself in history with an enormous base of confidence underneath, but an awareness that nobody can be everything. No one has all the qualities of all the people in the presidency. If you could combine all their strengths, you'd have the most extraordinary president there ever was. And and that's not going to be. But I think the fact that he was willing to take a, a chance on health care, for example, when I'm sure people were telling him, 
you yes. know, go for something less at yes. this point. Yes. You could be risking the whole thing. Um, he rolled the dice quite a few times. And, he did. and that shows a confident person that yeah, is not w- taking it personally. I was a witness to that. And he said, uh, <clears throat> he said, uh, and if we don't get it done now, we, it'll never get done. Uh, and if, if it, that makes me a one term president, that's, that's okay. And, um, uh, you know, that's what makes you want to work for. Oh, absolutely. If, uh, work for someone. Um, Roosevelt, you, you wrote of one of the truly great books, uh, history, of, history of All Time, No Ordinary Time, about Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt in World War II. Um, I want to talk specifically about two things. One is um, the advance of forms of media and communication. Uh, Roosevelt was a master. Lincoln and, and, and Teddy Roosevelt grew up in an era when the printed word and oratory uh, were public oratory were uh, as they were recorded in print uh, were very uh, much the dominant means of communication. Uh, uh, radio, I guess, started coming along at the end of the at the beginning of the twentieth century. But Franklin Roosevelt was the first one who really sort of weaponized, as it were, uh, radio as a political tool. Uh, John F. Kennedy really ushered in the television era, and it was television that propelled him to prominence. And Ronald Reagan uh, was probably the last great television president. Uh, Now we're in the sort of internet era. Uh, Barack Obama made good use of that in his elections. And now Donald Trump, the Twitter president, how important are these different modes of communication and what do they say about the political eras in which we live? Oh, I think it's a really important question. <clears throat> it's a really important question because there's always in history that age-old question, is it the man or is it the times? And is the person fitted for the times or is the person lucky that the times fit their qualities? So it's true that for Abraham Lincoln, when they would print his speeches in full in the newspapers, they'd be pamphletized and people would be reading them in their city homes or their country farms. When Teddy came along, the mass market newspapers had just come into play. And so his punchy language and his phrases, which could be headlines, were perfect for the time. And then FDR comes along. And it wasn't simply that he had the perfect voice for radio. It was much more than that. He understood that it was an intimate conversation with the American people. He always thought, he never thought about issues in the abstract. He always could picture somebody in their farm, somebody on a street corner, somebody in a store that would be affected by whatever policy he was talking about. So he was talking directly to them. I mean, there are stories from Saul Bellow when he was in Chicago. He said on a hot summer night, you could walk down the street and everybody would be listening to Roosevelt give one of his fireside chats. And you could hear it coming out the open windows, and you could keep walking and not miss a word of what he said. And then there's a story about a construction worker whose partner was going home early. And he said, where are you going? And he said, well, I'm, my president's coming to see me in my living room today. It's only <laughs> right that I be there to greet him. So he was able to translate complicated problems. I mean, that first fireside chat that he had about the banking system, when the banks are closed— and he's telling people, we've done, we're going to do an evaluation. We've got an emergency banking act. We're going to find which banks you can safely bring your money back to because people have been taking their cash out. Right. There was After a panic, that yeah. address, they brought their money back. They felt that contagious confidence that he had. 
And he only delivered It's extraordinary when you think about it, because these can be very dry and technical issues. And yet he brought them to life in ways that related to people's lives. And that's the key for a public speaker, I think. There's no question about that. I mean, television was somewhat different. I mean, I think Ronald Reagan was able to tell stories, but it was also television values the appearance, how you sound, how you look. You know, and he gave that affable, likable appearance, and he had a voice, and he knew how to deal with the teleprompter, obviously having been an actor. So he was suited for that, and he was lucky to be in an age when there were three networks, when what he said was not going to be questioned in the same way. Now, if you give a speech now, as you know so well, you know, we who are pundits are looking at the speech even before it's hardly done. On one cable set network or another, you may only be hearing parts of the speech, and there isn't that same moment except for really big speeches where everybody's listening and feeling and hearing at least the same thing. Then they can opinionate about it afterwards. Yeah, you wrote a book called The Bully Pulpit. <clears throat> the Bully Pulpit really is sort of a mythology now. I mean, you have to assemble your own pulpit around individual issues because of the balkanization of media. So if you're trying to reach a particular constituency, you have to find those outlets where you're gonna, where those people are going to be listening and watching. It's a much It's much, much harder. No, it's much harder for a president yeah. now. In fact, what Teddy Roosevelt meant by the bully pulpit was that the president has an unparalleled platform to mobilize public opinion. So it's not only that it's balkanized today, but it's that everyone else has a platform too. Yes. I mean, the internet has allowed people with megaphones as large sometimes as the big public figures. So you're competing against a lot of other people with a lot of other little or big platforms. So it's much harder, I think, to exercise public leadership in this media world than it was back in Roosevelt's time. You also have the the fact that because of this what I call balkanization of the media, people now seek out those outlets that affirm their points of view rather than looking to media to inform their points of view. Facts have become more fungible. Fact checkers are the biggest victims of this last uh, election. It's a it's a difficult environment, um, you know, when you consider all of these factors at play. Um, the other thing about Roosevelt that I want to talk to you about, and it's common to a lot of the presidents you've lived with uh, through your work, is adversity and the impact of adversity. Franklin Roosevelt uh, lived a charmed life until he didn't and was inf- uh, afflicted with polio. Lincoln's life was filled with tragedy and loss uh, and depression. Um, Teddy Roosevelt suffered incredible loss. How did those losses shape them as leader? I think, you know, overcoming adversity is an extraordinarily important trait for a leader because if you've been through something and you've come through it, like Teddy said, after his wife and his mother died on the same day in the same house, you know, one from childbirth, the other from typhoid fever, though she was only 49 years of age, when he went out to the Badlands. And he later said when he got through it that, you know, somehow now whenever I have an election, an election loss is going to be put in perspective, that life has its sorrows and its joys. And the test of a character is how you meet them, not what they do to you, which was what stunned me in a way when 
Donald Trump said that he had the very, very best temperament of anybody who'd ever run for the president because he always won, that he had a winning temperament. History would record just the opposite. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt's polio made him feel more connected to people to whom fate had also dealt an unkind hand. And he was able to reach out from his privileged background in ways that maybe he wouldn't have been as, as incredibly able to do had he not gone through years and years just trying to walk again, experimenting with everything, just like he experimented in the New Deal. And obviously Lincoln, having had that that real sense of sorrow and wondering whether his ambitions would ever reach the point where he could do the things he wanted to do and sometimes wondering whether he would ever reach that goal. And as we were talking about, Teddy, I think when you've come through adversity and you're able to see yourself backward, and if I got through that, I can get through this. That's the really important thing. Otherwise, if you won all the time and the first loss you're going to have, you're going to be thrown for a loop. And if you're an adult at that time or a much older person, it's going to be much harder. Well, one of the things that seemed clear during this campaign is that when Donald Trump suffered uh Setbacks was when he had these impulsive outbursts and lashed out. Um, but he did communicate to people this sense that I'm a winner and I can make you a winner too. Right. And uh, now, now <laughs> I guess the test comes as to whether he can improve. Uh, you know, that's lives. so interesting, David, because I hadn't really thought about that. But in a certain sense, it's just the opposite that FDR is communicating. I mean, they, they didn't know for sure that he was a paraplegic and couldn't walk on his own power. But everybody knew that he'd had polio. And so when he takes the helm of a stricken nation that is paralyzed, there is some sensitivity that they have that he's our guy, you know, just the opposite, not because he's won all the time, but because he's he's been he's through turmoil losses. and he's overcome loss. And if, if he's overcome it and he tells us now, which he does, we're going to get through this. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. Think of the fear he must have felt when he was told that he was a paraplegic and when he nearly died. And then he came through that and he can look at it from a rearview mirror It makes you the leader for that time. So it's almost the opposite now, as you were saying, that people feel if he's won, we can won too. It's a very different linkage to a leader. Could Lincoln, with his history of depression and suicidal impulses, Roosevelt uh, with his polio, uh, JFK with Addison's disease, which was um, life-threatening, and obviously other complications, could these presidents, who we recognize as as great presidents, could they have won in the modern era? You've got to hope so, or you're going to really feel bad about our country. But it would be more worrisome, there's no question. I mean, you think about what would have happened if Lincoln's near-suicidal depression, which people knew about, had been known, that he really was taking knives and scissors and razors from his room, that his friends took them away, so fearful were they that he would take his life. That might have suggested some instability that would have made people worried. When, on the contrary, the fact that he came out of that with the desire that the reason I can't die now is that I've not yet done anything to make any human being remember that I have lived, that was his ambition. If you knew that, that was much more important than that he'd been through this trauma. And if you knew that Roosevelt had, you know, even if you knew that he couldn't walk on his own power, which many people didn't know, what difference would it make? And you'd like to believe in today's world, he could be in a wheelchair proudly, and it wouldn't matter. And yet, and yet, and yet, as you say, um, given the way the press covers our presidents, the private lives become more important than they were in the past. Suppose we'd known that Roosevelt had almost gotten a divorce and that he'd had a relationship with Lucy Mercer. Um, would that have meant we should not have had him as our president? So it's very complicated, this yeah, whole stuff. It is. I, uh, 
I think the Lincoln example is particularly powerful because uh, there are so many people across this country, around the world, who deal with the issue of depression and the challenges of depression. And um, it's noteworthy that maybe the greatest American president fought through those th- those dark, dark moments and and ended up having such an enormous impact on so many lives. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with Doris Kearns Goodwin. Doris, in your interview with President Obama and Vanity Fair, and I really urge everyone to take a look at it because it was a great, great piece, uh, You, uh, he said this about Lincoln. Um, I think most importantly, I saw, I saw see somebody who was able to see humanity clearly, see the fundamental contradictions of the American experiment clearly, and yet still remain hopeful and still remain full of humor and still have basic sympathy for the human condition, even in the midst of a terrible war and having to make terrible decisions and having, and having a forgiving spirit. Um, I, I loved that phrase, the, the fundamental contradictions of the American experiment. It seems like we're coming hard up against it right now, a deeply divided country, perhaps not as divided. But it strikes me that some of the divisions or the main divisions that we're seeing are in part um, – the same divisions that Lincoln, slavery is not the issue, but the division between the mercantile states, the large metropolitan areas, and the agrarian states, and so on. This is this is an enduring cultural and in economic struggle that has defined our politics for hundreds of years. No, you're right. I mean, it's, clearly slavery was the main point of division in the 1850s, but it was also a northern manufacturing country and a rural south. And those divisions exacerbated the the polarization of the country. And we're finding that again now, Um, even more from, I don't know whether we had this a decade ago, but somehow the awareness of the difference in the way people feel about the other in this society has been brought out more in these last years, that people in the cities don't understand the people in the rural areas. The people in the rural areas look with you know, some sort of trepidation about the people in the cities. And when you read sociological studies that more and more people are living with like-minded people around them, shopping in the same stores. I think this is why so many people were stunned when Donald Trump won. Absolutely. And I suspect that there there were, you know, I I read uh, Twitter traffic and so on. I, I confess that I do from time to time. And I think there were a lot of people who would have been, um, shocked on who are supporters of Trump if he hadn't have won because they weren't talking to each other. Right, right. And I think, you know, Teddy Roosevelt said that the most important um, aspect of a democracy is for people to have, and especially leaders, fellow feeling for the other. And by that, he meant empathy, essentially. And he said that when he was young, having come from a privileged background, that the first time he went into the tenements or he went into these cigar-making plants that were houses, that it was somewhat conscious that he was going into a place that he'd never been to before. But he said, as a leader, you have to go there. And then after a while, it's not going to become conscious. If you start as a police commissioner, he saw tenements at the night that he never would have seen before. As a cowboy out in the Badlands, he saw ranch hands trying to make a living. He had a wonderful set of meandering experiences that brought him to the presidency that allowed him to see people as they lived, you know, trekking around with people in Maine, woodsmen. And that's what's missing today is that 
And I keep wondering, would national service make a difference? Would more people having had a military background helped us perhaps after World War II and, I think and that period? Unquestionably, that was the case. Because there you have a common mission and you have people working together over class lines, over religious lines, over racial lines. And they're just working to do something, to accomplish something. And once that's in your spirit, then you know that the other is not the other. And somehow, because of the media world today, because of where people are living, because of the absence of a lot of people being in the military, because of no, some, nothing like a national service program, that, that people don't have that experience of knowing other people, and then they become alien. And that is the hardest thing in a nation like ours, which is a nation of other nations yes. and a nation of all manner of people. Yes. And the, the need to somehow reach out and understand their lives. I, I was, I, that's why I was so optimistic when gay marriage happened, because it seemed to me that that was a symbol of the opposite situation, that because, and maybe media had helped, because people had known people in their own lives who, ha- who were gay or had children who were gay with their friends, but also seen programs on television that made it all seem um, something familiar to them, that they were able to seemingly overcome some of those prejudices. And, Although and not, ev- not no, all Americans not everybody no, and that's that exactly. But, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm haunted by the fact that I was looking at erroneous polling data, and yet I would drive out to a place I have in rural Michigan, and everyone had Trump signs on their lawns. not uh, Their yards, actually, not lawns. And uh, they would... Uh, and. And I, uh, and and these are good people, you know, hardworking people, decent people, great neighbors. But they feel like they've been displaced in this economy, uh, and they and they've been kind of screwed. And uh, Trump spoke to that. It makes me think about your book, The Bully Pulpit, which really is centered during the Gilded Age and the Industrial Revolution. Um, and we're all searching for historical kind of uh, lessons to help explain the era we, we're in. How similar are these eras, the, the Industrial Revolution, which completely changed the nature of the economy, created great wealth at the top and lots of consternation and, and, and alienation among workers who felt exploited, uh, and dislocations in our politics? I think they're very similar. I think if you have to look at another period that is an echo for what people were feeling today, it would be a lot of Americans during the 1890s. Because what they felt was not just that people were moving from farms to cities, that there was a huge gap between the rich and the poor. Before that, the richest person in the farmland might have been a doctor living at the top of a hill. But now suddenly you have people living in tenements side by side with these vast millionaire palaces. And the pace of life was being sped up at that time in a way that worried people. The telegraph, the telephone, you know, all these new inventions were coming in just like today. Technology has brought so much of a speeding up of life. There was lots of immigration coming in from abroad. I just read, I hadn't read it in a long time, a speech by Henry Cabot Lodge in 1896 on the Senate floor where he talked about the new kind of immigrants that were coming in were no longer the Western Europeans. They had dignity. They were hard workers. They were classy. These new immigrants coming in from Italy and Germany and all these other places now um, and, and Poland, they were people who were low life. They were swindlers. They were thieves. I thought, oh my God, this kind of a speech was given then. But all of that meant that people felt anxiety. In fact, there was a, a, a study done at the turn of the 20th century that people were more anxious and depressed than they'd been in a long time because they were nervous about an America that was changing. And that's what's happening now. It's you technology. See it. you it's see it. globalization. Even, even that, you see, um, you see high rates of uh, suicide among um, 
uh, men in their 50s who, you know, a lot of whom have been displaced. And, um, no, and you I see the mooring, they feel the moorings of what was a traditional life have been taken away. And that's it's why not Make that, America Great Again is right, such an exactly. appealing Right, exactly. But when you idea. think about it, what are people feeling anxious about? To some extent, it's jobs that technology has taken away. And hopefully somebody can do something about that, but it's hard to know what can be done about that. Especially as te- technology churns faster and faster. Exactly and so. the more you can automate work, the, the, the higher the profit. So this is a fundamental challenge to capitalism. It's a fundamental challenge that goes beyond the globalization and, argument. Right. And, and beyond America. You see it in all, all the advanced economies. Europe is facing these same right-wing populist movements. And the other thing is that's changed, obviously, is the parents of the generation that's now out there probably were not divorced. So whether or not happy in their marriage, there was a stability to those families. And now with the large numbers of people that get divorced and kids that are trumpeted from one place to another, that creates instability. And and, and sensory overload from all of this media. And that's what happened in the 1890s, too. They were writing about the fact that suddenly you had newspapers that are telling you horrible things that are happening all over the world, these mass market, you know, tabloid newspapers. So you're worrying about things that are happening that you never even thought about. Now that's the same thing, too. So I think... What, what happened in the 1890s is that's instructive for us today. At the beginning, there were demagogues. I mean, there were people running around talking about Wall Street is the enemy. We have to do something about Wall Street. Um, there were people who were talking about immigration, as Sen- Senator Henry Cabot Lodge was. And you had William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president in 1896 as a protest somewhat candidate who then became the Democratic major league candidate. In some ways, Trump was a protest candidate within the husk of the Republican Party. And in those times of anxiety, protest candidates have a lot of sway. But then luckily, I think for the Republican Party and for the country, Teddy Roosevelt, when he came in, was able to channel that anxiety toward positive accomplishments so that the people felt that things were being done for them. Factory exploitation was lessened. Women and children were given certain rights. Um, He did something about railroad monopolies, antitrust, conservation, so that people felt that government was handling some of their problems. And then the anxiety got translated into legislation. And that's what you need from a leader at this time of anxiety. Your magnificent book, The Bully Pulpit, also focuses on the role the muckrakers played, journalists who exposed uh, some of the, uh, the, the darkest recesses of, of American life and the inequities in the economy. Um, can you imagine a platform like that today in this media environment? You know, and this really goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. What the muckrakers did were to tell stories. It's not like they put out a bunch of facts about how bad things were in the oil industry with J.D. Rockefeller or what was going on in the coal mining industries. They were given the, the wherewithal by the magazines, particularly McClure's magazine, to study a subject for two years on salary before they had to write a single word. And that meant that when they put out these pieces, Teddy Roosevelt could not have mobilized people, he didn't think, on antitrust without some of these stories having really let people know what it meant when a monopoly occurs. You know, that not only is it swallowing up these small businesses, and he would make those businesses come alive, the muckrakers would. So he cared about these people. But it also meant that prices were not lowered. In fact, in many times, they were hired. So that you understood through the story what the economy was doing and what needed to be done to, to preserve it. And that's what we still need. That's, that's the role of journalism then. And we, we've got to figure out after this election, 
I'm sure journalists and and you yourself are having thoughts about how how could it have been done differently and yeah. what has to be done now. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an even larger question, which is what about technology? Because the technological revolution that we're experiencing isn't just about the economy. It is about communications and every aspect of our life. And it's churning so quickly that we don't have the capacity, it seems, to get our arms around all the implications of it. Uh, I've said this many times here, um, and it's not an original thought because Fareed Zakaria was the one who surfaced it in one of our conversations, Uh, but we've got driverless cars coming online, and by the end of this decade, uh, they'll be well in circulation, and we have three million people who make a living driving trucks, buses, cabs, uh, and and what happens to these folks in the economy? And I think that what's desperately needed is a strategy right. to to make sure that there's uh, meaningful work available for people because that's how quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 